Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Only undeniable necessity, conjoined with the imperious will of the people, could have imposed on me the terrible and dangerous office of dictator and supreme chief of the Republic. But I breathed freely once again as I returned to you this authority I somehow managed to exercise, with such peril, difficulty, and sorrow, amid the most horrible tribulations that ever affected any society. The Republic over which I presided during this period was not marked by some new political tempest, or bloody war, or even an outburst of popular anarchy. It was something worse, the upheaval of all disruptive forces combined, the inundation of an infernal torrent ravaging the soil of Venezuela. Adrift on this sea of troubles, I was but the lowly plaything of the revolutionary hurricane tossing me about like a piece of straw. Simone Bolivar, 1819 200 years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies, and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 35, Bolivar, Part 3 On January 30th, 1818, near the town of San Juan de Piara, in what is now Colombia, Simón Bolivar rode out to meet a legendary cavalry commander named José Antonio Páez, who was known as El Centoro de Oceanos, the centaur of the plains. They had never met before, but each man knew the other by reputation. And when they approached, Bolivar got down off his horse, Paez got off his, and they embraced warmly. The two commanders were very different. Bolivar was a wealthy Creole, an effete intellectual educated in Europe, who'd haunted the salons of Paris and the garden squares of London in his youth. Paez had rough manners and was born into a poor family. His style of fighting was guerrilla warfare, roughing it out in the wilderness of the plains, but for a brief time, Bolivar and Paez's goals were aligned. They were ready to join forces to kick the Spanish out of New Granada. Given the first two episodes of this series, if you haven't heard them yet, you should, you could be forgiven for thinking that the revolution of the South American colonies against Spain was pretty much exclusively the Simone Bolivar show. It wasn't, though. 
A lot of people in numerous countries got in on the action of harassing the Spanish, and José Páez had been particularly good at it. He had won numerous victories out in the plains. The term llaneros means plainsman, while Bolivar was busy in the east. But by the end of 1817, as we saw, Bolivar was eager to consolidate the broader revolution under his own leadership. Joining forces with Páez was a way of doing that. After all, some big commander out in the west who was winning lots of victories might ultimately develop his own power base, and warlordism was exactly what Bolivar was trying to stamp out. So it was fated that Bolivar and Páez would end up throwing in with each other, eventually. As the two commanders discussed plans to take the revolution west, a major logistical problem loomed. Bolivar had an army of 3,000 men, and somehow they had to get across the Apure River, a tributary of the Orinoco, so they could begin the western campaign. But there were no boats, and a lot of Bolivar's men were cavalry on horses. The Spanish forces, under the command of Pablo Morillo, who we met in the last episode, had several small ships lined up on the opposite side of the Apure River. Paez ordered 50 of his own cavalrymen to charge. They ditched their saddles and rode bareback into the river, surprising the Spanish. After several crackles of musket fire, the Spanish, startled to see cavalry charging toward them across the river, panicked and fled, leaving the boats behind. A second charge mopped up the Spanish garrison, and eventually captured 14 Spanish boats that were then used to bring Bolivar's army across. Paez had accomplished a military feat that few thought possible, taking enemy naval forces with cavalry. This was the kind of daring improvisation that marked the war against the Spanish, and it was exactly what Bolivar needed. His revolution was nowhere near finished. In fact, much of the fighting in New Granada in the spring of 1818 went badly for the Republicans, with several major losses to the better-equipped Spanish under Morillo. On April 17th, a royalist spy even managed to infiltrate Bolivar's camp and tried to assassinate him. The shots missed, but it was a close call. May and June 1818 brought further defeats. Bolivar himself, suffering from infected pustules on his rear end, possibly a form of anthrax infection, couldn't sit on a horse. He had to retire from the field temporarily. He soon found himself back in the only stronghold he possessed, the city of Angostura, his capital. But if you've been following the story so far... The one thing you must know about Simon Bolivar is that every time he got knocked down, he got up again and got right back into the fight. The ebb and flow of progress against Spain is the whole story of the Venezuelan and Colombian revolutions. As he retreated to Angostura, content to fight the revolution with a pen instead of a sword for the time being, Bolivar could take stock of the incredible things he'd accomplished in eight years. Since the beginning of his journey in the spring of 1810, he'd raised and commanded armies, toppled governments, he'd been a dictator, and also a champion of liberal democracy. He'd been exiled twice, and still he wasn't finished. But Spain still hung on in South and Central America. It would take a lot more fighting, and some luck, to change that. How Bolivar sought to send the Spanish home once and for all, after 300 years of harsh colonial rule, is the story we turn to tonight. So join me now for part three and the conclusion of our series on Simone Bolivar. Dear listeners of Second Decade, before we begin our dive back into the story of Simone Bolivar, there are a few announcements I'd like to make. 
First, I want to deeply thank everyone who listens to this show and everyone who supported and, con- and encouraged it along the way. There's so many great podcasts out there to listen to, and the fact that you all like this one is immensely gratifying. This has always been a small show. Second Decade is a one-man operation. I do the research, I write the scripts, I do all the sound editing, I hunt for the images on the website, and I write the copy. I don't have the listenership of hardcore history, and you're not going to find Second Decade t-shirts and coffee mugs on the website, though Napoleon and Shaka Zulu bobbleheads are coming. No, actually, I'm just kidding. I wish we did have those. Anyway, when you do it all yourself, you can't always accomplish everything you'd like to. I had hoped to do two more episodes this season, finishing out with Napoleon's 100 Days, but getting this series on Bolivar finished up has been all I can do, especially as I've been facing some health issues lately. Consequently, this is going to be the last episode of the second season, before I go on summer hiatus for a couple of months where I can turn my attention to other projects. However, Second Decade will be returning for a third season, and I promise that the episodes that open Season 3 will be on Napoleon's 100 Days. It's the very beginning of summer now. If you listen closely, you might be able to hear the birds behind me. And if you're anything like me, you've probably got a very busy and eventful summer ahead of you. And so we're going to give the 18 teens a little rest during the height of it. But the day will come in September or October when you see Napoleon and his dumb little hat pop up on your iTunes or your Pocket Casts app, and you'll know that Second Decade is back. That day will come. It's also not beyond the realm of possibility that you'll hear from me over the summer in one or more off-topic episodes. Remember those? I haven't done one in a while. So don't wipe me off your app entirely. I'll be around, and you can also keep tabs on what I'm up to on my websites, seanmunger.com and thathistoryguide.com, or my YouTube channel, which has become quite active lately. Anyway, I just wanted to say what a pleasure it's been to connect with so many history fans out there. Big thanks to the Recorded History Podcast Network and all my friends there, too. You all rock. And now, let's return to Angostura and the story of Simon Bolivar. While the revolution was stalled, Bolivar's personal passions were as active as ever. During the last round of fighting, he'd lost touch with his mistress, Pepita Machado. On July 11, 1818, Bolivar wrote to his nephew to try to fetch her in Caracas, where he'd heard her family had retreated. Try to persuade the family to travel, Bolivar wrote, and tell Pepita that if she wants me to be true to her, she'd better come here. The last few months of 1818 were, for Bolivar, taken up much more by the business of statecraft than of warfare, though admittedly it was sometimes hard to separate them. Bolivar had dabbled in diplomacy before, but now, as the rest of the world was starting to wake up to the fact that continued Spanish control of the Americas was not something you could take for granted, he had to wheel and deal with a lot of foreign interests. The end of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe certainly helped Bolivar's cause. After old Boney was shipped off to St. Helena in 1815, Britain rapidly began downsizing its horrendously expensive army, and it was willing to sell surplus for cash. Bolivar purchased a boatload of muskets, pistols, swords, powder, and saddles, all British war surplus, in July 1818, and more shipments followed. Soon his army was more well-equipped than it had ever been. There was even a group of British volunteers that made their way down to Venezuela to join Bolivar's army. Many of the English, Scottish, and Irish volunteers were drunken reprobates, but after they were weeded out, Bolivar was left with some quality men that would make a serious difference in the fighting to come. Things were finally starting to turn his way. 
In late 1818, Bolivar got word from his nephew, Leandro Palacios, that Pepita Machado had finally been located in St. Thomas in the Caribbean. Bolivar was then making plans for a big military offensive against New Granada. He sent for her and her family. Apparently, the idea was that Pepita would actually join Bolivar on campaign. She'd actually done that a couple times already, most notably during the admirable campaign of 1813. The thing was, though, Pepita never actually showed up, and there are no historical records to demonstrate what happened to her. We know she didn't wind up joining Bolivar on campaign. In one unreliable source, Pepita is said to have died in a small town called San Rafael, apparently of tuberculosis. In another report, she was making her way through the jungle to her lover and died in the Achuagas region. All we know is that after 1818, Pepita Machado disappears from history. Bolivar did not get word of her death for months. Even early in 1819, as he was planning his latest campaign against the Spanish general Murillo, he was still hoping she'd show up at any moment. She never did. By January 1819, Bolivar was in a place called San Juan de Payara, preparing the next invasion of New Granada from Venezuelan territory. By this time, Bolivar was doing all the dishes, military planning for his big campaigns, plus trying to run the new government of Venezuela, which was soon moving into an important new phase. In the fall, there had been elections for members of the new Congress, and in early 1819, the delegates were starting to arrive in Angostura. The deal was that he was supposed to give them a new democratic constitution, and the Second National Congress would put it into effect. Bolivar, though, was still out there in the jungle planning the campaigns. As he and his chief adjutants headed back to Angostura down the Orinoco River, winding through the jungles of South America, Bolivar was literally writing Venezuela's constitution while sitting in the boat, and dictating passages to his secretary. One wonders how the U.S. Constitution might have turned out if James Madison and Alexander Hamilton had to write it in small boats going through the jungle, dodging water moccasins and armor-piercing mosquitoes. Bolivar made it back to Angostura with his draft constitution. On February 15, 1819, he walked into the government house in the capital, where the delegates of the Second National Congress were gathered. The speech he gave there to the Congress, I quoted it at the beginning of this episode, was one of the most important political statements of Simone Bolivar's long and storied career. It was a powerful statement in favor of liberalism and democracy, perhaps as powerful as any democratic manifesto ever given during the second decade. But I have to admit, and this is just my take, that there's something disingenuous about it. Bolivar seemed to revere and admire democratic ideals in the abstract, but when it came down to it, he was not above acting like a dictator when he thought the situation called for it. We've already seen in this story previous examples of Bolivar taking on dictatorial powers and using them to cement his own supremacy. Even in the speech to the Second National Congress, he pulled off sort of a sneaky dictatorial coup. At the beginning of the speech, Bolivar declared that he was laying down his power, because it was dangerous for one man to remain in charge for so long. But the effect of the speech was carefully calculated to allow Bolivar to retain his power, and with a fresh mandate. The Second National Congress was so moved by his speech, and so horrified, supposedly, by the prospect of not having him in charge of the unfinished revolution, that the next morning the Congress re-elected Bolivar President of the Republic. In effect saying, no, please stay, we can't do it without you. 
How many would-be dictators in Latin America or other places in the world would use this same tactic to hold on to power in subsequent decades or centuries? Given Latin America's complicated relationship with democracy in modern times, Hugo Chavez, widely regarded as a dictator, was also elected president of Venezuela in much the same way Bolivar was. I wonder whether this wasn't sort of an original sin in Latin American democratic politics. But I digress. As Bolivar pressed the palms of the Congress delegates lionizing him in Angostura, he was already hatching his latest military scheme. It was to be his most audacious move yet, and would fulfill a promise he'd made a long time before to broaden the War of Independence to include New Granada, and to win it once and for all. The time was right for this campaign, because by the spring of 1819, Paez was finally doing well again. At a major battle at Quesaras del Medio, Paez and his llaneros surprised General Morillo with a daring cavalry attack. Over 400 Spanish soldiers were killed in this battle, and Morillo, who survived, the energizer bunny of Spanish generals, he wrote back to Madrid that Paez had attacked him not with 150 men, which is what happened, but 700, which is what he thought. Bolivar's armies were finally gaining the advantage. Thanks to the British, both their surplus weapons and the mercenary officers that started to make a difference in the field, the Republican forces were stronger than they'd ever been. As you've seen from his record, whenever things start going well for Bolivar, he usually gets audacious and cocky. He was bound to repeat this pattern again. What he had in mind was audacious largely because of environmental factors. By May 1819, the rainy season had begun in South America. Remember, south of the equator, the seasons are reversed, and the equator cuts right through New Granada, or Colombia. As Bolivar himself left Angostura for the field, he saw the privations and difficulties that his men faced. Waters were rising, what used to be roads were becoming sticky rivers of mud, and the Andes were impassable for military forces because of melting ice. What was more, disease invariably followed the rainy season. Yellow fever and malaria were rampant in the wet months, as you'd expect in a terrain with a lot of mosquitoes. This is definitely not the season to plan a big daring military campaign. Yet, this is exactly what Bolivar did. On May 23, 1819, he convened a council of war with his top officers in a tiny village called Setenta. They met in an abandoned hut where there wasn't even any furniture. The officers sat on cattle skulls they found out in a field somewhere. Bolivar told his men they wouldn't be in winter quarters. Instead, he was going to take his army over the Andes Mountains, swing around behind the Spanish, which would undoubtedly be an unpleasant surprise, and liberate New Granada. This would be the decisive phase of the War for Independence. If Latin America was going to break free of Spain, this was its chance. By June 4, 1819, the height of the rainy season, Bolivar's army was on the move, and they were pretty miserable. The rains were torrential. Any low ground was totally flooded. Rivers and even fields were filled with bloated carcasses of drowned cattle and other animals. There was little food. Bolivar's campaign happened toward the end of the cold decade, one of the things that makes the decade of the 18-teens unique a period of temporary global cooling caused by volcanic eruptions in 1809 and 1815. You've heard me talk about this numerous times on this show. While in 1819 in the Northern Hemisphere conditions were largely returning to normal, 
rains and floods in the southern hemisphere were still pretty bad. This is the situation faced by Bolivar's men. They had to resort to some ingenuity just to keep going. Soldiers built makeshift boats out of cowhide, which they towed behind them as they slogged through the swampy fields. The cowhide boats were for their ammunition, which would be ruined if it got wet. They had to figure out ways to ride, even when their feet swelled so much they couldn't get them into their stirrups. Women and children accompanied this army. They often did on military campaigns in the early 19th century, and the soldiers tried to keep them as dry as they could with blankets, but a lot of people were sick after a short period of time. Horses suffered too. They found it much more difficult than humans to navigate fields of sticky mud. Occasionally, horses and carts would slide and fall into deep puddles of mud and literally drown, which happened often on the Western Front in World War I. There were other environmental hazards, like mosquitoes, sandflies, and even tiny flesh-eating fish infesting certain bodies of water. Reading about the privations of Bolivar's army on this campaign, it reminds me a lot of the problems faced by Napoleon's troops in Russia, except substitute rain and mud for cold and ice. At the end of June, Bolivar's army linked up with forces raised by the new Granadan officer, Francisco de Paula Santander, who would later be president of Colombia. They were now at the foot of the Andes. For about a week, the troops enjoyed good food, dried land, and real beds. But the vacation was over on July 1st. Bolivar now led the army into the foothills of the mountains. Militarily, the purpose of this whole exercise was surprise. Murillo was in winter quarters to wait out the rainy season, and even when sketchy reports started to reach the Spanish that Bolivar and his troops were on the move, generally they weren't believed. After all, who would be nuts enough to slog through miles of swollen rivers and muddy plains, and then try to climb the Andes just to get around behind them? Of course, there's no way they could do that, are the famous last words of many a military commander throughout history, and Murillo was about to join the list. The mountains proved an even more punishing ordeal than the low country had been. The army's livestock couldn't make it very far, and soon the path of Bolivar's army was marked by a string of dead cows and pigs rotting along the muddy pathways. It had turned cold. Bolivar himself wrote, The harshness of the peaks we have crossed would be staggering to anyone who hasn't experienced it. There's hardly a day or night it doesn't rain. Our only comfort is that we've seen the worst, and we are nearing the end of the journey. On July 6, after a week of the worst hell the troops had been through, they started to come down out of the mountains. Many soldiers were sick or their clothes were in tatters. A quarter of the British mercenary force was dead. But when they reached the little village of Socha, in the foothills of the mountains on the other side, the army got a hero's welcome. People rushed out in celebration and quickly gave the troops all the clothes and food they could spare. The people of this area were firmly anti-royalist, and they viewed the arrival of Bolivar's army as a liberation. Tellingly, there were no Spanish pickets or vanguards anywhere in the area. Murillo regarded the Paramo de Pispa, the mountain pass that Bolivar had come through, as completely impassable. He didn't even leave troops behind to guard the access to it. Now Bolivar had his army right where he needed it. As the British mercenaries who'd survived the march brought down what was left of the army's ammunition, Bolivar concentrated on getting his troops rested, regrouped, and ready for the inevitable battles with the Spanish that would occur once they figured out what the hell was going on. The Spanish had a number of advantages in terms of armaments, training, and terrain, but Bolivar had surprise and audacity on his side. In late July, Bolivar saw the opportunity coming. 
a Spanish army under Brigadier General José María Barrero was headed toward Bogotá, the capital, which was lightly defended. If Bolivar could destroy this army, he would be a long step closer to capturing the center of New Granada. Now that his troops were regrouping after the mountain traverse, he decided to try. On July 25, 1819, Bolivar attacked the Spanish at a place called the Vargas Swamps, 120 miles northeast of Bogota. At first, things did not go well for the Republicans. Hails of Spanish musket and cannon fire ringed Bolivar's men on all sides, but at Bolivar's urging, the British mercenaries proved decisive in the battle. A cavalry commander named James Rook, a veteran of Waterloo, led his men up a steep hill to storm the Spanish positions. The daring attack proved an inspiration to the rest of Bolivar's men. Quickly the tide began to swing toward the Republicans and against the Spanish. Rook was wounded in the arm and went down, but the Venezuelan and New Granada lancers took up the charge and put the Spanish on the run. Barrero lost several hundred dead and the approach to Bogota. Vargas Swamps was a hugely important victory, but it was a narrow one. It might have gone either way. As for Rook, a surgeon chopped off what was left of his shattered left arm. According to legend, Rook supposedly raised his remaining arm and shouted, Viva la Patria, meaning the country. The doctor asked him which country, England or Ireland. Supposedly, Rook replied, Whichever country will bury me. He was taken to a monastery to recuperate, but he didn't make it. James Rook died on July 28, 1819, and remains to this day hailed as a hero of Colombian independence. So now, after the victory at Vargas Swamps, the strategy was clear. It was going to be a race to Bogota, the capital. If Bolivar could get there first, before the Spanish had the chance to send reinforcements to shore it up, he might stand a good chance of capturing it. On August 7, 1819, barely a week after the Battle in the Swamp, the flags dropped and the race got going. Bolivar split his army into two, giving command of one part of it to General Santander. The Spanish, headed for Bogota, were marching as early as 6 o'clock a.m. Bolivar's team got there first. He took up positions at a bridge on a hill called Boyaca, which commanded a view of Bogota, and was to become the site of the fateful battle. For several hours in the early afternoon of August 7th, the battle raged, cannons fired, and Bolivar gave quick orders to his troops that were consistent with his strategy of late, win quickly with audacity, and drive the Spanish off. Although Rook was dead, the British legions distinguished themselves again in this battle and were pretty much instrumental to this victory. Ultimately flanked, the Spanish commander, Borrero, the same one who got clowned at the Vargas Swamps, decided to surrender. He couldn't bring himself to give up to Bolivar, the Creole upstart, so he surrendered to one of the British. The Republican army took 1,600 Spanish prisoners. Bolivar had lost 13 dead, 53 wounded. The way to Bogota was now clear. The Spanish understood immediately how important this battle was, and how it reached far beyond New Granada. In his report to the Spanish Ministry of War, written after the battle, the overall Spanish commander, Murillo, wrote this, quote, The rebellious Bolivar has occupied the capital of Bogota, and the deadly outcome of this battle gives him dominion over the enormous resources of a highly populated, abundantly rich nation, from which he will take whatever he needs to prolong the war. This unfortunate loss delivers into rebel hands, apart from the kingdom of New Granada, many ports in the south. The interior of the continent all the way to Peru is at the mercy of whoever rules. In just one day, 
Bolivar has undone all we have accomplished in five years of his campaign, and in one single battle he has reconquered all the territory that soldiers of the king have won in the course of so many past conflagrations. End quote. The people in and around Bogota, at least those who leaned royalist, also knew how important it was. As Bolivar rode on horseback toward the capital as fast as he could, royalist families, especially those with money, started bolting for the exits. Everyone was afraid of his war-to-the-death decree and saw themselves getting lined up in front of a firing squad. Terror is a powerful weapon in a revolution. In Bogota, Spanish agents started abandoning their houses, fleeing with whatever they could carry, leaving behind their rich haciendas and businesses. Spanish soldiers started blowing up any ammunition that was left. The roars of the explosions could be heard for miles away. Most ignominiously, the Spanish viceroy himself, Juan José de Samano, dressed up as a poor Indian and a poncho in a dirty hat, and slinked out of the capital toward the hills. On August 10, 1819, Simón Bolívar rode into the capital of New Granada, triumphant, but kind of a puzzling sight. His hair was long and scraggly. He had no shirt, only his tunic coat unbuttoned, and his pants were faded and his face weather-beaten. He was 36 years old, in the prime of his youth, and now at the height of his powers. As he rode into Bogota down the Calle Real, people started to come out of their houses, amazed at the sight of this person, a conqueror to some, a liberator to others, the man who had undone 300 years of Spanish rule in New Granada. Soon a huge crowd of people followed Bolivar to the central plaza. When he got off his horse and swept inside the palace, where local Republican leaders were waiting to greet him, one of them asked him if he needed to rest. Casually, Bolivar replied, Absolutely not. I never tire on a horse. About two months later, word finally reached Bolivar as he was on his way back to Angostura in Venezuela that his lover, Pepita Machado, was dead. All this time he'd been waiting for her to join him. He must have known by a certain point that something was wrong, but now he finally gave in to his grief. He had been with her longer than he had with any woman, including his wife. There wasn't much time for mourning. The revolution did not stop for one man's sadness. Although Boyaca was the key battle, Bolivar's War of Revolution was far from over. In the fall of 1819, he returned to Venezuela, which was starting to slide into political chaos. In fact, the Second National Congress, who had so eagerly granted Bolivar power earlier in the year, flirted with the idea of deposing him. On December 17th, though, at Bolivar's urging, the Congress declared a new government and a union with New Granada, forming the country of Gran Colombia. That constitution, the one that Bolivar had written on the boat during the military campaign, he tore it up. Time to start over again, with another constitution, another national assembly, more elections. This, too, is a pattern in Latin American democracies, and it started right from the beginning. As it turned out, events back in Spain helped to complete Bolivar's revolution. A part of the story that I haven't been telling you, it's just too involved to get into, but it might warrant an episode on its own, a part of this story involves the struggle back in Spain over something called the Cadiz Constitution. In 1812, during the time Napoleon was occupying Spain, a group of reformers came up with a constitution for Spain, one of the most progressive and forward-thinking constitutions of the era. When Napoleon was defeated in 1814 and Ferdinand VII came to power, he abolished the constitution and repressed those who wanted him to observe it. Part of a series of attempts, mostly futile, by European monarchs in the wake of Napoleon to roll back the clock to the good old days before the French Revolution, 
when monarchs were absolute and had no checks on their powers. In January 1820, a Spanish officer named Rafael del Riego led a revolt against the absolutist rule in Spain. Long story short, as a result of this revolt, in March 1820 the Cadiz Constitution was reinstated and reaffirmed. Spain was now, at least officially, a constitutional monarchy. This event sort of reset Spain's relationship to its rebellious colonies. Bolivar always took the position that the former colonies were now separate countries, fighting a war with Spain as a foreign power. But after 1820, it was a lot harder for Spain to claim that Venezuela, New Granada, and such were colonies in revolt. The writing was on the wall. In 1820, Bolivar and Murillo, the Spanish commander, negotiated a six-month truce in South America. Although Spain didn't officially recognize Gran Colombia as a country, it was certainly moving in that direction. The truce didn't last too long. The war broke out again on April 21st, and Bolivar won another important victory, the Battle of Carabobo, against Spanish forces in June. The war quickly spread through South America, and more countries, such as Peru, declared their own independence from Spain. Another separate rebellion and insurgency in Mexico led to the Treaty of Cordoba in August 1821, in which Spain tacitly, though not officially, recognized Mexico as an independent country. I'm quibbling here because it's complicated. Suffice it to say, by 1822, Spain's entire empire in the Americas, north and south, was collapsing rapidly. Bolivar kept campaigning, especially against royalist armies entrenched in Peru. As he won more victories, Bolivar's power continued to grow. In February 1824, the new government of Peru named him dictator. Two decisive battles, the Battle of Junin in August 1824 and the Battle of Ayacucho in December 1824, were together decisive in this conflict, and by early 1825, Bolivar had succeeded in tearing yet another country, Peru, out of the carcass of the Spanish Empire. Bolivia, which had been part of Peru, called Upper Peru, was next. In August 1825, the nation of Bolivia, named after Bolivar himself, was declared. He had succeeded beyond anyone's wildest expectations. He had indeed liberated many of Spain's former colonies in Latin America. He couldn't claim credit for Mexico, Argentina, or Chile, which broke away from Spain at about the same time, but everything else bore the unmistakable stamp of Bolivar's leadership, and often his dictatorship. After 1825, Spain had nothing left in the Western Hemisphere except a couple of Caribbean islands, like Cuba, which was eyed hungrily by the United States. But almost immediately upon its creation, the Grand Federation of Independent Countries that Bolivar had forged out of the dying Spanish Empire began to collapse. Where Bolivar's career in the second decade was marked by a trajectory of increasingly large victories, the decade of the 1820s, especially its later half, was a time of failures and retrenchment. Revolts and uprisings, mostly as a result of economic and ethnic tensions, were hard to tamp down. Bolivar's attempts to write a new constitution for Gran Colombia failed in 1828. That year was probably the low ebb of Bolivar's life. In September of that year, an attempt was made to assassinate him by disgruntled Colombian officers in Bogota. His life was saved by his new lover, Manuela Science, whom he'd met and begun his affair with in 1822. Bolivar's passionate nature was reasserting itself, but he never married Manuela, nor anyone else. Bolivar became increasingly marginalized as his experiment in Republican Brotherhood failed. 
In fact, the various states that Bolivar had liberated from Spanish rule fell into fractious infighting amongst themselves. Gran Colombia ultimately, for example, declared war on Peru. Three districts in the north of Peru seceded and became the country of Ecuador. Everything was falling apart, including Bolivar himself. By 1828, he was suffering from tuberculosis and was increasingly unwell. This, along with the revolts and the political enemies he'd managed to make, led to his final surrender of power. For good, he meant it this time, and on January 20th, 1830, Bolivar resigned as president of Gran Colombia. Fellow countrymen, he wrote, Hear my final plea as I end my political career. In the name of Colombia, I ask you, beg you, to remain united, lest you become the assassins of the country and your own executioners. A few months later, Gran Colombia ceased to exist entirely. Three independent republics took its place, New Granada, Venezuela, and Ecuador. Bolivar talked about retreating into self-imposed exile somewhere in Europe, arguably where his adventure had started, but he never made it there. His health failing, he coughed his life away in a hacienda in Santa Marta, Colombia. There, on December 17, 1830, Simón Bolivar died. He was 47 years old. The legacy of Simón Bolivar is a complex one. Certainly, he's been lionized and celebrated for the better part of 200 years as the liberator of most of Spanish America. In more recent times, he's served as a nationalist and even militarist symbol, appropriated most famously by Hugo Chávez, president of Venezuela, who often encouraged comparisons between himself and the great liberator. Bolivar was both hero and villain, I think. He was a skilled military commander, though not infallible. His critics throughout history, Karl Marx was one of them, often accused him of deserting his own troops and leaving people who counted on him in a lurch, which, as we've seen, did happen a few times. And his methods, especially that war-to-the-death thing, were often unnecessarily harsh. As we've also seen in this series, Bolivar's commitments to the democratic ideals he started out with were less than ideal. But it's hard to find a revolutionary anywhere across history who lives up to the rhetoric they spin to keep their revolution going, or to start it in the first place. The occupation of revolutionary is one that, almost by definition, is almost impossible to fulfill with moral or intellectual consistency. Bolivar has that in common with many other revolutionaries, including the founders of the United States. I find Bolivar a fascinating man, contradictory, often disappointing, always very hard to figure out, but fascinating. Few others, maybe no one else with the exception of Napoleon, left so deep a mark on so much of the planet during the second decade. Indeed, you could say the 18-teens was the decade of Bolivar. This concludes the second season of Second Decade. I'm going to take the summer off and return with new episodes in the fall, though it's possible I may do some off-topic episodes in the off-season. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it will greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also, check out the other great history podcasts on the Recorded History Network. Podcasts like The History of Vikings, Dead Ideas, Age of Napoleon, Art History Babes, Explorers, History in Hindsight, and Stuff What You Tell Me. And remember, I have an audio drama podcast, science fiction, called Double Perigee. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. 
I teach history classes online. You can see my platform for that at thathistoryguide.com. And I have a YouTube channel that's increasingly active, so check that out too. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. My historical sources for this episode include Bolivar, American Liberator by Marie Arana, Simon & Schuster, 2013. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night and have a good summer. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.